Ski Podcast. In this episode, we present a Grand Challenge Lecture by Angela Barney-Leach, QUT's Pro Vice-Chancellor for Indigenous Strategy. Angela belongs to the Wapabara, Guami and Kul Tribe, whose country is the Keppel Islands of Queensland's Central Coast. In this lecture, Angela delves into the question of how QUT and other universities can move beyond practical reconciliation in higher education and tackle the challenges and opportunities in progressing Indigenous Australian engagement and empowerment. This lecture was recorded on Friday 25th of October 2019 on QUT's Gardens Point campus. We hope you enjoy this IFE Grand Challenge Lecture. So not long after I started my position here at QUT, I met with a prominent Aboriginal organisation to talk about possible partnerships. The VC was with me at the time. And we asked them, what can we do for them? And his response was a little bit of shock. And he said, this is the first time that any university has come to us and asked us what we want. Usually you come and ask us for your data, for our data. You want to interview us. You want us to be on one of your boards. All focused on what we can do for you as a university, but never what you can do for us. Those comments at the time, I thought, kind of aligned with my thinking around universities before I came to work here. Because at universities, I kind of saw that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people were excluded while we were on the outside, but quite often are excluded while we're on the inside as well. We were not part of the university. We are objects. We are not part of the knowledge, but objects to be known. And this isn't because Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander academics haven't asked for this to be different. They have. And there's several reports out there where they're calling for change, through the, whether that's through the Barrett Report or through the National Indigenous Higher Education Consultative Committee reports. They are often asking and outlining recommendations for and requesting different ways of operating and for systemic change within universities. However, there hasn't been that change. And this lack of change made me think about locked-in inequality. So locked-in inequality occurs when historical disadvantage is so built into the system that the racial disparity occurs even when in the face of good faith. And it doesn't eradicate any intentional dis discrimination due to a lack of focus on systemic and structural discrimination. So I want to just give you a brief summary of some of the government policy that's been imposed on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in Australia. And this, these policies have assisted in our locked inequality in universities. You have to remember when you go through it, these have been designed and implemented by non-Indigenous Australians. Indigenous Australians didn't have a voice. Oops. Okay. So, invasion began by Cook asserting possession of the Australia through the planting of the Union Jack. What ensued were battles between the British invaders and the owners of the country. 
There were no treaties or formalised agreements with Indigenous Australians like in Canada, America and New Zealand as part of this invasion and then colonisation process. Berendt, who's one of our uh, Indigenous lawyers and leading academics, contends that this allowed for Australia not to recognise the laws of Aboriginal people or their governance, structures and sovereignty. Following on from this, distinguished Professor Aileen Morton Robinson contends that the nation of Australia and its denial of Indigenous sovereignty has allowed for Australia or this country to be perceived as a white possession. This has led to white possession being given significant status in discussions and is often the basis for when we start discussions on Indigenous land rights. The reduction of the Aboriginal population due to invasion from approximately 300,000 down to 60, which is an 80% reduction, which is why we often call that period genocide, and it probably fits the definition of attempted genocide. This led to the implementation of the protection policy era. The House of Commons Select Committee on Aboriginal Recommendation recommended for Aborigines in 1837 that there should be missionaries for Aboriginal people, protectors for their defence and special codes to protect them. By the mid-1800s, formal and extensive protection policies were formulated by non-Indigenous Australians aimed at isolating full-blood Aboriginal people on reserves and restricting their contact with people outside of their reserves, whether they were children, husbands, families, and they tried not to assimilate those full-bloods. Then they actually went on to look at a process of assimilation of their children who were not full blood, which we, that full blood isn't a term that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people use, but it's a term that people kind of understand in the historical context. The right to marry was limited, as were civil rights, movement was highly restricted, and employment included forced employment, which I think unpaid forced employment that they drag you back when you leave is called slavery. So I actually termed forced employment slavery was regulated. And further church missions and government settlements were set up and we were moved on to them. The assimilation period began around the early to mid 1900s where it was agreed by the Commonwealth and the states that they would absorb the natives of Aboriginal origin, but not of full blood. This policy led to the continued loss of language, culture, the destruction of Aboriginal family units, and the removal or kidnapping of Aboriginal children, many who suffered neglect and abuse. These children became known as the Stolen Generations. While many policies in this era were labelled as being for Aboriginal people, the policies also covered Torres Strait Islanders. These laws can be seen as the beginning of the rights of non-Indigenous people to remove Indigenous Australian children based on their designated criteria and the preference of Anglo-Celtic culture, which is often seen as race neutral. By the 1970s, so I was, I was born by then, barely, 
By the 1970s, the assimilation was questioned. The basic assumption of assimilation was that Aborigines would inevitably and probably willingly become like white Australians in terms of their manner of living, customs and beliefs. The assumption that equality would only be achieved by the loss of Aboriginal culture and identity was no longer put forward as the official thinking. And official thinking, because there's still a lot of official thinking that way um, in Australia today. In 1972, a separate Federal Department of Aboriginal Affairs was established and government programs began focusing on Indigenous Australian health, education and employment outcomes. So this started being a focus on the outcomes of Indigenous people and continued that look at it's not systemic or, or structural discrimination that created these outcomes. A decade later, in the 1980s, the Commonwealth Government commenced the policies based on the rights of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to maintain their culture. This policy change to self-determination was to encourage Aboriginal participation or control in areas that the government identified as areas of concern. This policy has been criticised and was at the time for being unclear about what the policy was actually doing for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people because it was very similar to a multicultural policy. So Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people were not offered or given anything more than migrants or other minority groups. Regardless of this criticism, the principle of self-determination is still valid and Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islander people continue to ask for control and self-determination over their lives and Indigenous affairs. So overlapping the self-determination policy was the reconciliation policy era, which began in the 1990s. The term reconciliation has become part of the Australian politics and key debates about Indigenous Australian affairs and policy for the last 30 years. Under Prime Minister Keating in the early 1990s, it commenced as being about rights and social justice. Stating in his Redfern speech, we cannot confidently say that we have succeeded as we would like to have succeeded if we have not managed to extend opportunity and care, dignity and hope to Indigenous Australians. It was during this time that ATSIC, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission, was established to give Indigenous Australians a level, level of autonomy and governance over some programs and funding. At the time, the establishment of ATSIC was opposed by the Howard-led opposition. ATSIC was a body elected by Indigenous Australians and was instrumental in putting forward our views and aspirations in the years after its establishment. The Council for Aboriginal Reconciliation was also established for the federal government during this era to assist in achieving reconciliation by 2001. I think that boat has sailed about 20 years ago. The Council consulted widely with Indigenous Australians and developed an Australian declaration towards reconciliation and a roadmap for reconciliation. The Council then disbanded and recommended the establishment of Reconciliation Australia. As part of this commitment, the Keating government sought to develop a package to remedy institutional and structural impediment to full participation 
of Indigenous Australians in economic, social and cultural life. However, this process was stalled when the government changed to the Howard-led government in 1996. Prime Minister Howard was of the view that the pendulum had swung too far in favour of Indigenous Australians. ATSIC was abolished and reconciliation changed to have a practical focus targeting programs that mainly address disadvantage. This gave reconciliation movement a fundamentally different focus to its original intent. The reconciliation was to be about practical issues and the subtext to this is that rights and social justice would no longer be a focus. The shift to practical reconciliation has allowed a broad range of governments, politicians, organisations and universities over the past decades to attach reconciliation to actions, policies and programs and funding that do not focus on social justice and institutional and structural impediments but on the outcomes of Indigenous disadvantage. They do not focus on sovereign rights but parity, incremental increases and reducing disadvantage, not the structures that enable these outcomes, all the while flying the reconciliation banner. So what practical approaches, have, what has achieved, been achieved under the practical approach over the past 30 years? So our children are twice as likely to be developmentally vulnerable. I suppose you can probably read what's on the left there, we don't score as well in the NAPLAN, which is the literacy and numeracy um, tests, we are overrepresented, like significantly overrepresented in child protection and youth justice. We are the most imprisoned people in Australia. We have higher rates of unemployment and lower earnings, and our home ownership is half that of other households. And I think we, people hear that all the time, but just imagine if that was you and your family and your sisters and your children, and that's what's waiting for you. And when we look at universities, we see that enrolments in higher education is low, 1.8% in 2017. Parity is 3.1%. Our nine-year completion rates are 47% below the 74% for non-Indigenous students. And employments at university in 2018 was 1.2% of all staff. And only about a third of those are academics. 45 Indigenous academic staff are employed in South East Queensland between five universities. That is, is pretty bad when you think about how knowledge is developed and put into the curriculum. We can't have that happen if we don't have Indigenous academics. 45 across five universities. So to be clear, I know universities are not the answer to all of these outcomes, but they are part of the problem and they can participate in the solutions. I think universities need to think critically about what we can do and whether what we are doing is making a systemic and structural difference. I believe Australia, and in this case, because I'm at a university, need to move past the practical reconciliation 
into a new era that aligns with the Uluru Statement principles and seeks reforms for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to take our rightful place in Australian universities. A movement that is defined by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and not one that's been imposed by a non-Indigenous government. A movement that recognises Indigenous Australians, our voice, governance, structures, most of all our sovereignty. A recognition that's been denied to the lack of formal agreements from invasion and colonisation to today. It is time for Indigenous Australians to set the policy era and for non-Indigenous Australians to listen, make space and walk with us. The Uluru Statement came out of a number of constitutional conventions. The largest one when they brought them all together, over 250 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander leaders at Uluru in central Queensland and Central Australia. The majority of the participants resolved in the Uluru Statement from the heart to call for the establishment of a First Nations voice in the Australian Constitution and a Makarata to supervise a process of agreement making and truth telling between governments and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Now I'm just going to play the Uluru Statement for you. It takes about two minutes. We gathered at the 2017 National Constitutional Convention, coming from all points of the southern sky, make this statement from the heart. Our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander tribes were the first sovereign nations of the Australian continent and its adjacent islands, and possessed it under our own laws and customs. This our ancestors did, according to the reckoning of our culture from the creation, according to the common law from time immemorial, and according to science more than 60,000 years ago. This sovereignty is a spiritual notion, the ancestral tie between the land, or Mother Nature, and the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who were born therefrom remain attached thereto, and must one day return thither to be united with our ancestors. This link is the basis of the ownership of the soil, or better, of sovereignty. It has never been ceded or extinguished and coexists with the sovereignty of the Crown. How could it be otherwise that peoples possessed the land for 60 millennia and this sacred link disappears from world history in merely the last 200 years? With substantive constitutional change and structural reform, we believe this ancient sovereignty can shine through as a fuller expression of Australia's nationhood. Proportionately, we are the most incarcerated people on earth. We are not an innately criminal people. Our children are alienated from their families at unprecedented rates. This cannot be because we have no love for them. And our youth languish in detention in obscene numbers? They should be our hope for the future. These dimensions of our crisis tell plainly the structural nature of our problem. This is the torment of our powerlessness. We seek constitutional reforms to empower our people and take a rightful place in our country. When we have power over our destiny, our children will flourish. They will walk in two worlds and their culture will be a gift to their country. We call for the establishment of a First Nations voice enshrined in the Constitution. Makarata is the culmination of our agenda, the coming together after a struggle. It captures our aspirations for a fair and truthful relationship with the people of Australia and a better future for our children based on justice and self-determination. 
we seek a Makarrata Commission to supervise a process of agreement making between governments and First Nations and truth telling about our history. In 1967, we were counted. In 2017, we seek to be heard. We leave base camp and start our trek across this vast country. We, we invite, invite you, you to walk, walk with, with us, us in a movement of the Australian, Australian people, people for a better, better future. future. By issuing the Uluru Statement to the Australian people rather than to politicians, participants invited all Australians to walk with Indigenous Australians in a movement of the Australian people for a better future. Through the Uluru Statement, Indigenous Australians can be seen to be setting the new Australian policy based on voice, truth, treaty with an underlying sovereignty basis. For university, this means new dimensions for planning needs to occur. So I've had a look at the Uluru Statement. I've sort of pulled out some dimensions that I think that universities need to think about. And these are the ones I thought. Recognition of ownership. Every Australian university is on Indigenous Australians' clans' land. The need for substantive policy change, that's one. Second is the need for substantive policy change and structural reform to demonstrate a fuller expression of the role of Indigenous Australians within universities. The third is a fair and truthful relationships based on sovereignty, justice and self-determination. And four, equitable and honest partnerships and agreement making with Indigenous Australians that are adequately resourced and make a structural difference. Compare the Uluru Statement with the Reconciliation Framework. So when you look at that, you can see there is clearly a fundamental difference between practical reconciliation framework and what Indigenous Australians are asking and calling for through the Uluru Statement. So as a university, QUT had an important decision to make in 2019. Would we use the reconciliation framework to move to a new, or move to a new framework based on the voices of sovereignty of Indigenous Australians and the use as the Uluru Statement as a possible basis? We chose the Uluru Statement. This meant we need to lead and create our own planning frameworks and undertake a different journey to some of our partners and other universities. We are choosing a different path because the current one is not leading us to our chosen destination. So how is QUT going on its journey using the four dimensions that I took from the Uluru Statement? Recognition of ownership. One of the key underlying principles for QUT's recognition of ownership is that Australia is a country of Indigenous Australians in line with Aboriginal people's customs, the owner of the country that we enter. So when people say Aboriginal, they kind of lump us all together. But there's many, many different nations of Aboriginal people in this country. So in Aboriginal culture, when we enter someone's country, we pay respect to them and it's them who own the country that we stand on. That's the Turubal and Yagara people from here. It's not all Aboriginal people. And for me, as a Wapabara, I need to know that I'm standing on somebody else's land. It might be Aboriginal land and this kind of huge thing of lumping us 
altogether, which we have accepted as a term, but we have not accepted that every Aboriginal person has a right to individual people's country. So what QUT has done, we've changed our acknowledgement of country from traditional owners to Trilba and Yagara people, recognising the owners of this country. We are stopping saying in the spirit of reconciliation prior to acknowledgement, because an acknowledgement of country is not about relationships and respect. It is about recognition of sovereignty. We implemented an elders program with only Turrible and Yagara elders, as they are the elders of the country where QUT campuses are based. This is in line with cultural protocols. We are developing a framework that will sit over our master plan that will recognise Turrible and Yagara people and the country itself. We have plans for developing a welcome to country video for significant events in conjunction with the Turrible and Yagara elders and developing a Turrible and Yagara naming policy. The important thing about the naming policy is it's using the language of the country from where we are. Speaking language helps to heal country. So it's very important that the Aboriginal language that's used in this country is the Turrbal Nyagara language. It helps to heal the country itself. It helps to heal the people of this country. So this year, QUT decided through its strategic plan to elevate the positioning of Indigenous Australians, giving Indigenous Australian engagement, success and empowerment a focus for the university. Indigenous Australians are also being included as a sphere of activity through co-designed Indigenous Australian teaching, research and learning. So that's our strategic plan, as you can see up there. And you can see in the blueprint priorities where the Indigenous priority is sitting and then as a sphere of activity as well. Furthermore, strategic direction has been integrated into the planning and budgeting cycles and documents championed by senior officers and is being supported by changes to structure and resources. Much of this has been achieved through QUT's integrated planning framework. So up the top there, you can see where the Indigenous priority, Indigenous sphere of activity sits. I suppose I'm supposed to point that thing, but no. And then underneath that sits the foundational plans. Now these foundational plans kind of set the scene for what's happening in those different areas across the university. So you can see there that there's an Indigenous Australian foundational plan. This plan, as you can see, these plans also sit above the faculty and institute plans. So the Indigenous Australian Foundational Plan seeks to embed the Blueprint's Indigenous priority and objectives into all university plans, build a whole of university approach to Indigenous Australian achievement, establishing overarching and direct line of sight from the Blueprint priorities through to operations, promote shared responsibilities and accountability for achieving the Indigenous priority support faculties and institutes to the provision of operational details and how they will contribute to the achievement of Indigenous Australian priority. The other foundational plans that are up there 
will also have specific Indigenous actions within them, and those plans have been developed in consultation with senior Indigenous Australian staff. Within the Faculty and Institute plans sits an Indigenous, Indigenous Australian Institute that will transform Indigenous research and education within QUT. Then within the enabling plans will sit the Ujuru unit that provides admission pathways and support for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students. As part of the structural reform, QUT has implemented an integrated and distributed model of governance for Indigenous Australian issues. So rather than having all Indigenous Australian programs and responsibilities sit underneath one person, it has been decided to distribute these responsibilities to ensure the senior officer accountable for Indigenous to ensure the senior officer accountability for Indigenous Australian education issues. So the Indigenous research area, headed by Professor Peter Anderson, reports directly to the person who's responsible for research and in the university. And then I report directly to the Vice-Chancellor who's responsible for overall direction and the Julie who works in the Ujuru unit works directly to the persons responsible for working and meeting the needs of students. So this allows for Indigenous issues only to be like one step away from solving the problem. And I have to say the three, the Provost, the Vice-Chancellor and the Registrar has been very supportive in this model and uh, have been working with all of the team, we call ourselves a team, the three in the middle, and really support um, the introduction of Indigenous priority. So this model also allows for QUT to focus on the specialised needs for each position. So it allows us to speak, to recruit for specific skills, rather than one person who may have a number of different skills or general skills. So QUT has completed an initial reworking of its Indigenous Australian Committee's terms of reference to acknowledge the right of Indigenous Australians to make decisions on cultural protocols and the right to have in-camera sessions with Indigenous Australian members only. So that means that non-Indigenous officers can be asked to leave the meeting and come back and we give them the decision which I think is, might be a first for an Australian university. In the development of the faculty, institute and divisional plans, the Indigenous Australian staff in those areas have and are being consulted. Myself and Professor Peter Anderson were also involved in the development of the university's foundational plan. We know there's a lot more that we need to do in this area, but we also believe that we're actually moving to a space where we want to move to, but we will continue to focus on social justice and outcomes. Now I know I said, oh, you know, those ones only focus on outcomes, but you still need to focus on outcomes at the same time you focus on systemic and structural change. So we all know universities' relationships with Indigenous people have not always been an honest one. Indigenous Australians have been studied, misinterpreted and stolen from, from universities. 
It's difficult to go forward from this when we need to change this reality and perception of universities by Indigenous Australian communities. Universities have a clear role to play in partnering with Indigenous Australian organisations, not just co-design, which I think really needs to take into consideration the power imbalance that comes when you're actually developing partnerships. So recently, QUT went back to that peak organisation and we commenced discussions on research that we will undertake with them and for them at no financial cost. We have also commenced discussions with three other peak Indigenous Australian bodies in Turrbal and Yagara country to undertake research at no financial cost to them. These relationships will assist QUT to enhance our teaching and research functions and our capability. This doesn't mean that anyone that shows up we will jump into a relationship with them. Our relationships and our partnerships are very purposeful. And even though it's at, we're saying at no financial cost to them, it's actually benefiting us that we're part of this relationship with them. So we'll be working on principles in the coming year for how QUT will engage with Indigenous Australian communities and organisations for our research, teaching and engagement activity. We hope to work with Indigenous Australians internal and external to QUT. Whether these relationships will be seen as equitable and honest partnerships is something we need to discuss and work through with our partners. In addition to the dimensions from the Uluru Statement, I believe it's also important for universities to engage with and focus on the dimensions of a civic university. So a civic university provides opportunities for the community of which it's a part of. It engages fully in its region and partners with other organisations, including universities, to provide opportunities for itself, community and other organisations to grow. Based on a recent review of literature, Goddard et al. came up with these seven dimensions of a civic university. So have a sense of purpose. QUT plans to deliver benefits not just to individual Indigenous Australians, but Indigenous Australians' communities commencing at our front door and building out nationally and internationally. QUT has plans to have conversations with Indigenous Australians and be engaged in purposeful collaborations and partnerships which will enhance our teaching and research functions and a wider positive impact on the Indigenous Australian community. We're going to take a holistic approach, seeing it as a QUT-wide activity and not confined to particular teams. We're going to have a strong sense of place. So while QUT operates on a national and international scale, it is acutely aware that it stands on the lands of the Turrbal and Yagara people. The Turrbal and Yagara form part of QUT's unique identity. This is something QUT wants to celebrate and we want to have a porous border between QUT and all who live on Turrbal and Yagara country. When I say all, that's all Indigenous and non-Indigenous people. QUT is significantly increasing its funding in an Indigenous Australian space and plans to implement and fund the Indigenous Australian Institute from 2020. We will have clear benchmarks and performance indicators to measure our progress. And we'll explore new ways of tackling challenges 
we will promote innovation and entrepreneurship in this space and promote collaborations with public and non-public institutions. So some of the key challenges, because I'm aware I haven't talked about any challenges, and there are quite a lot of challenges, but the first one, um, I think it's interesting awareness from Indigenous Australian community. If you went out to the Indigenous Australian community and asked them about QUT, there wouldn't be a high level of awareness. However, there isn't a high level of awareness about universities at all. People do not know what happens in a university. So to combat this, we have employed an Indigenous Marketing and Communications Manager to work with the Marketing and Communications team, and we need to increase our engagement and communication with the Indigenous Australian community. It's because one of the things I'm surprised, just about oh, every week, I see something that's, very, that's really amazing at this university, and I think to myself, that can help this community. Why aren't we doing that with that community? If someone knew about this, we'd be able to use it. And I think that we need to put that out to the community and say, this is what happens here, this is how we can work together, and this is how we can support your community. One of the biggest issues is the distrust from the Indigenous Australian staff. And it's a bit of, here we go again, for Indigenous Australian staff. They often feel, oh, I've heard this before, you said you're going to have a new policy, you're going to give us money, and then, you know, then something else comes along and you forget all about us and um, we're dropped like a hot potato. So to overcome this, QUT is regularly engaging with Indigenous Australian staff, but we know that this will continue to be a challenge given previous promises from both governments and universities. So. Indigenous Australian staff are pretty amazing. We have a lot of goodwill. But I have to say our goodwill is getting fairly low at the moment. So I think that QUT, we can't continue to draw on that goodwill because it's just about empty. So we need to make sure that when we do this, we actually do it. And when there's commitment, there really is commitment and we move forward from this. Because we're getting to a point in time where people are just over it and over working and not being supported and not having our issues heard. So the other thing that's been a bit of an issue, I suppose, for me is the eagerness from the non-Indigenous Australian staff at the university. QUT is very, very supportive of this agenda. And I have many non-Indigenous people coming up to me and saying, this is fantastic, I've been waiting for this priority, and I want to do this, or I want to do that, let's build this. And one of the issues is we're still developing the frameworks and processes, and my office is still being set up. And we have to prioritise our activities in this establishment phase. So trying to keep non-Indigenous people still as allies and still who want to work with us at the same time as saying to them, get back to me in six months. Oh, that's kind of hard to keep them on the boil for that. So that's 
that again is a bit of an issue. Um, and then another one is like, how do we influence the system? So in 2019, we went to, actually in saying that, we do need to keep all the non-Indigenous staff on side because I think that in order for this to work, we all need to work together. It can't just be Indigenous staff over here and we're all running around and we're doing things and there's a very small number of us doing that at the moment and we're burdened and we want to give some stuff to you to do. So, and that might happen. If you come and see me, I might say, come back to me in six months about what you want to do. But in the meantime, here's something I prepared earlier. <laughs> so, our last one is how to influence the system. In 2019, QUT is going through significant planning processes, including the strategic plan and development of the foundational plans. And we also have new structures and new budget models. And there's been an opportunity in this to build Indigenous success and empowerment into all these plans. But it's been very busy. There's been a lot of discussions, a lot of changes, a lot of back and forth emails, ensuring everyone that's been in the loop. But at the same time, this is a really key time, a really key opportunity for QUT to think about what it's doing and how we can build Indigenous Australian success into our plans at a really systemic level. So we're in the middle of finalising all those plans and I'm looking forward to them coming out at the end of the year or early next year because it's going to be a clear marker for QUT and our Indigenous Australian priorities. Now, I know there's going to be other challenges and the mob up the back there can probably say, you missed these five challenges, Angela. But we know it's going to be difficult. And I think that the Leanne, oh, the Register, the Vice-Chancellor and the Provost, we know that it's going to be difficult, but we're all working together because we all want to make this happen. And the Indigenous Executive Committee has been very, very supportive in the direction that we're moving. So I want to end with a story, very short one, that I hope will reflect QUT's commitment. A number of months ago, an Indigenous Australian organisation in Brisbane contacted a number of universities, including QUT, to request access to sporting facilities for an Indigenous Australian youth health program that they wanted to deliver. Many of the students were students at risk. One university sent back a list of full costs of access. Another responded with a 50% discount. QUT responded that the organisation can access the facilities for free and the health faculty will assist in the development and facilitation of the health program. The program was so successful that the second round of the program will be commencing next week. Thank you. from the IFE. To stay up to date with our podcast, please subscribe to our channel. You can also visit us on the web at www.qut.edu.au slash IFE and we're also on Twitter at IFE underscore QUT and Instagram at IFE.QUT. We really hope you enjoy this IFE podcast.